in April of 1945, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was hanged by the Nazis just three weeks before Hitler shot himself and less than a month before the war would end and Germany would surrender. His crime was that early in the Nazi regime, he spoke out against Adolf Hitler as a Christian, as a pastor. He was able to sneak out of the country, went to America, went to England, but his heartbeat was always for the German people. And so he was smuggled back into Germany during the Nazi regime, and there he pastored several underground churches until eventually they caught him and he went to Flossenburg concentration camp. While he was in that situation, he wrote he wrote a lot of letters, he wrote a lot of uh, treaties, sort of things he thought about. He pulled the scripture out of his mind and he was writing and his writings were smuggled out by friends and some help with some guards. And it turned out that uh, his writings would become super powerful and Dietrich Bonhoeffer would write some credible works that are still uh, well read today. One of them was about what the church should be like. And his book was called Life Together. He wrote a little uh, enough treaties that they were able to put it together into a book and it's called life together meaning how should the christian community look and it was an interesting it's a great read if you've never read it you should get a little copy of it and do some reading in it because one of the things he talks about is we always try to enter into the christian community with what he calls a wish dream sort of a fantasy of what we think communal living should be like and we bring to it our own personal ideas our agendas our understandings of how a perfect society should function together and usually what that means is it's about what we think things should be and he says jesus is not about that he's about binding us together because of who he is and what he has done at one point in his book he says Human love lives by uncontrolled and uncontrollable dark desires. Spiritual love lives in the dear light of service ordered by the truth. Human love produces human subjection, dependence, constraints. Spiritual love creates freedom of the brethren under the word. Human love breeds hot house flowers. Spiritual love creates the fruits that grow healthily in accord with God's will in the rain and the storm and the sunshine of God's outdoors. The existence of any Christian life together depends on whether it succeeds at the right time in bringing out the ability to distinguish between a human ideal and God's reality, between spiritual and human community. The life or death of a Christian community is determined by whether it achieves sober wisdom on this point as soon as possible. In other words, life together under the word will remain sound and healthy only where it does not form itself into a movement, into an order or a society, but rather where it understands itself as being part of the one holy, universal Christian church where it shares actively and passively in the sufferings and struggles and promises of the whole church. Interesting thoughts he has. It's well worth continuing and reading on. If you've never read any Bonhoeffer, you should. And I was thinking about him because this week as we study through the Gospel of John, we run across this new commandment Jesus gives to his disciples, which is actually the prototype of how to define Christian community. It's found in John chapter 13. If you've got a Bible, open it up. If you're on your phone, go to Bible Gateway or whatever app you use to find it. If you're at home, get your Bibles open. John chapter 13. 
And we're going to begin reading in verse 31. It's at the Last Supper. Jesus is sitting at the table with his disciples. He has just finished um, basically sending Judas Iscariot out, who he knows is a, be- who is a betrayer. So now evil has left the room and is set in motion the final 24 hours of Jesus' life on earth. And he is gathering his, now his devotees, the ones who are all in with him, and he has some final words for them to say. In fact, the next few chapters of the Gospel of John are words to believers, Words to those who are devout followers of Jesus Christ. The next few chapters are only to his own. He's no longer speaking to the religious leaders. He's no longer speaking to the crowd. He's speaking to his own. And so what he says is powerful. In verse 31, it begins by him saying, So when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him immediately. Okay, let's just unpack that for just a little. When he had gone out, that was referring to Judas. Judas had gone out. And Jesus turns around and says, now it begins. Now glorification happens. This is it, the beginning of the final glorification of the Son of Man. I'm sure that everybody sitting at the table with him was like, um, okay, if you say so. Not knowing what he was talking about. What Jesus was talking about is in the next 24 hours, the events that would go down would be his betrayal, his arrest, his being put on six different trials in the dead of night, his beaten and being put on the cross and dead by sundown the next day. Now, I don't know about you, but none of those things strike me as glorifying. They strike me instead as horrifying. But to him, to Jesus, it was like, no, this is the glory. The glory is about to begin now. And it's actually what Jesus was saying, knowing The suffering, the betrayal, the injustice, the things that he was about to endure were the things that were going to ultimately glorify him in the, well, not just in the realms of man, but in the realms of heaven and hell as well. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 16 through 18 says this, and I love the way the Passion Translation phrases this one. It says, For it is clear that he didn't do this for the angels, but for all of the sons and daughters of Abraham. This is why he had to be a man and take hold of our humanity in every way. He made us brothers and sisters and became our merciful and faithful king priest before God as the one who removed our sins to make us one with him. He suffered and endured every test and temptation so that he can help us every time we pass through the ordeals of life. Love that. Jesus is about to become something He wasn't before. He had absolute power and glory in heaven as the architect, as the creator of the world. He disrobed himself from that, Philippians 2 tells us. He stepped down into into humanity, lived and walked among us, but the ultimate glorification was about how far he was going to descend from the realms of man even down to the abode of the dead. It's because he would suffer and die unjustly. He would actually receive new glory, a glory he did not actually have before. And I don't know if you've ever thought about it, but what draws us into him is not so much his power, it's his tenderness and compassion. When we wear emblems to identify as Christians, we don't wear a picture of a rolled away stone on a tomb, right? We don't wear a necklace of what is that little thing? Well, it's obviously it's the tomb with the stone rolled away. Jesus rose from the dead. That's not what we wear. What do we wear? We wear the cross. We wear the emblem of his pain, and his suffering, not of his resurrection and his power. 
Catholics put Jesus still on the cross. When you see a cross with Jesus on it, that's the, uh, the Catholic view of his pain and suffering is still ongoing in a sense as they, their own sins participate and he's still paying for the sins of humanity. Why is it we're drawn to the cross more than we're drawn to the empty tomb? And I think it's because at the cross we see how far he's willing to go to love us. It's not his power that really evokes our love. His power evokes our respect and his on, and honor. But it's his pain and suffering that make us love him. It's his pain and suffering that draw us in to understand that was supposed to be me. You took that for me. That's where our love awakens. It's in the glorification of his pain and suffering. He's willing to go deeper into the realms of death. And in this case, no one can assist him. No one can help him. No one can be there with him on the next phase of the journey. See, he says in verse 33 of John 13, Little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, where I am going, you cannot come. So now I'm saying to you. It's interesting. He had said to the Jews this very quote, but to the Jewish religious leaders, he had added something. He had said, you're going to seek me, but you won't find me. He doesn't say that to his own disciples. To his disciples in this, he says, I'm about to leave. I'm going to go somewhere. And where I'm going, you cannot come. He needs to do something. No partner can be with him. No advocates can support him. No crowd can be around him. No brothers and sisters in Christ can be there to sustain him or to fall back with him. This next phase of the journey is a journey he does alone in his own power and in his own glory. It's the journey to the abode of the dead. He's about to go to the cross and all the way to death itself. I don't know if you've ever thought about it, but you know, when the Apostles' Creed, which is one of the earliest statements of faith of what it meant to be a Christian, the Apostles' Creed bakes, dates back to somewhere around 150 A.D. And in the Apostles' Creed, it was early on when, you know, you were in the becoming a Christian, there wasn't really the access to the Bible like you and I have. So they have, would have these statements that were made and say, this is what you believe. If you're a Christian, these are the things you believe. And I don't know if you ever really thought about the Apostles' Creed because it begins by saying, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, was buried, and he descended to hell. Some translations will say he descended to the dead. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. When John sees the resurrected Jesus at the beginning of Revelation chapter 1, when he's going to receive the rest of that revelation in that book of, uh, that closes our New Testament, Revelation 1, 17, 18, he's, John writes, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. And look what Jesus says about himself. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. I have the keys of Hades and death. Right? He's centered. And he's, Ephesians chapter 4, 9 says, and in this chapter in Ephesians, he had just finished quoting Psalm 68, saying uh, that he ascended and he took captive a host of captives. And then verse 9 says, now this, he ascended. What does it mean? But that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. 
Every person who had ever died before was under the curse of death. Every person who had ever died before had died from an inherited sin, what we call original sin from Adam and Eve, but also as a result of their own sins. Every person who had ever died descended into the abode of the dead, the place called Hades, Gehenna, whatever it might be mentioned. New Testament has different words for it. But when they entered in there, they entered into under its control and as its victim. Jesus is the first one who enters into the abode of the dead. And since he is sinless, it has no hold over him. It has no power over him. He enters death as a conqueror. He enters death, not as the one who is the victim, but as the one who conquers it. He bursts down the doors of death. And I think he, and I agree with some scholars, I think he wrests the keys of death and Hades away from Satan. And he says, these are mine now. You no longer have control over what's going to happen with humanity. From the fall of Adam and Eve, you've had control all these centuries. Now they belong to me. It's why Jesus says in Revelation, behold, I was dead and now I'm alive forevermore. And I'm the one who holds the keys of death and Hades now. That's what he meant when he said he was about to be glorified. He knew something was about to change in the fabric of you. Even Jesus himself would become something that he wasn't before when he ruled the universe with God the Father Almighty and the Holy Spirit. Something new was going to happen. And just before all that goes down, he then turns to his followers and he says this in verse 34. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you, so that you also love one another. By this will all know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Kind of an interesting phrase. because Well, first off, he begins by saying, a new commandment I'm giving you. I mean, this is like, he doesn't say that a lot. A lot of times he kind of gives, I don't know, sort of moral advice or says things like, you know, if you're, if a person strikes you in the cheek, turn the other cheek. And these other kinds of beatitudes, he gives, blessed are those who are meek. He does, he's done this, but he's, he doesn't often, he'll stop and say, this is a commandment. And what he means is, this is a moral imperative that you are to carry out. Put this one up there with the top ten, right? The 11th commandment is going to kick in right now. You had the 10 from the Old Testament, and now you get this one. Love one another as I have loved you. It's a commission to go to action. And it's interesting because the word he uses is the classic word agape. The Greeks, of course, if you may have heard, have had four different words for love. Phileo, brotherly love, eros, you know, the erotic love, a passionable woman and a man. And then you have this agape love. And I've heard many scholars say it's the highest form of love, and I, I don't know. It's just one of the four. I do know this, though, that agape love isn't based on feeling. Agape love is the willful choice to act in a loving manner regardless of whether you feel anything touchy-feely about it. Agape love is the kind of love that acts in a manner of love that is beneficial to someone else. And it's the actions of love that don't matter how you feel. Now, oftentimes in the New Testament, to act in a loving manner, eventually the feelings will come. And eventually you will have that emotional side of agape love. But most of the time in the New Testament, no, it's not an emotional love. It is an action love. It is a verb that you do. And so it's interesting because eros love can wear out. Phileo love can get tired. And when they start to fail and crumble, it's agape love that kicks in. Where you act in a loving manner regardless of how you feel and you stay in the game. And if you stay in the game, the feelings of love and affection will return. Jesus is turning to his disciples and saying, here's the thing. I'm going to give you a brand new commandment. 
You are to act in a loving, beneficial manner with one another. And if you do that well, everybody will know that you are my disciples. And that's how they're going to tell. They're not going to tell because you go to church. They're not going to tell because you sing songs. They're not going to tell because you claim to have daily devotions in your Bible. Those are not going to be the hallmarks. The hallmark's going to be this. You act in a loving, beneficial way to each other. And when people see that, then they'll know. Then they'll know you're the real deal. And it's interesting because, you know, when you look at the rest of the New Testament, the early church began to unpack what that statement really meant. And the rest of the epistles that would be written, the things that would happen in that first church age amongst, you know, the Apostle Paul and John and Peter and as the church grew, they would start fleshing out what does this even really mean? The commandment to love one another ended up bigger than we thought. It would incorporate Gentiles, and it would incorporate people from different social classes, and it, was, it would incorporate how do we treat women and how to treat men, how to treat slaves, how do we treat free people. It would incorporate, it would become huge. And in the New Testament, they started to have this phrase, what I call the one another's. If you look up the phrase one another, they were all these commands in the New Testament. And I've looked at them, and there's dozens and dozens of these commands of one another's. Here's some examples. Romans 12.10. Be kindly and affectionate to one another with brotherly love, in honor, giving preference to one another. Romans 12, 16, be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Romans 14, 13, therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but resolve, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. Romans 15, 14. Now, I myself am confident concerning you, my brethren, that you also are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to admonish one another. Galatians 6, 2. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Ephesians 4, 13. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, Hebrews 10, 24 says. And the next verse, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another. And so much more as you see the day approaching. James 4, 11, do not speak evil of one another, brethren. James 5, 16, confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed and on and on and on the list could go. I once pulled out a list of these, as many as I could find. It's, I can get up to 80 pretty good, possibly over 100. Over 100 of these one another. What does it mean to love each other? Well, look up the one another commands in the New Testament. And you begin to see this is what it means. It means behaving in all these incredible ways. I have friends, and I'm sure you do too, who say, well, I can be a Christian without going to church. I don't really need a church home to be a Christian. I can live my Christian life kind of as a lone wolf soloist, and I sort of flit into this Christian circle and flit into that Christian circle and go into this other one. And, you know, I kind of, this is how, I don't need a church to be a good Christian. And I dare you to read the one another list and say, really, you can do that in isolation and as a soloist? No, you can't. Because the thing about flitting into this community and flitting in that community is you never have to have skin in the game. You never have to buy in to the depth and the power of relationships when the struggle gets real. You run. 
You always have one foot out the door. If you're a person that says, I don't need a church, you're a person that's already got both feet out the door, and once in a while you like to step into a community just about the time it gets maybe slightly uncomfortable, then you like to jump out and go somewhere else. And you are never obeying any of these one another commands. Jesus is not looking for spiritual butterflies who flit around and occasionally, or fairies who drop a little goodness here, a little kindness over there, I'm going to spread my little goodness glitter, and off I go. When Jesus asks the community to love each other, he is looking for warrior princesses and warrior princes. Ones who will stay in the game and do battle. Ones who will come out beaten and bruised and battered. Ones who will be able to say to someone else, I know how to comfort you because I've taken the beating and I know what it means to be comforted. People who will endure with one another. Who will hang in there with each other. Who will actually admonish one another who will be able to criticize each other to higher levels of love and good needs, not to tear down, but to build up. People who will be there for the dark times, the negative times, the hard times, the conflict times. People who understand, I enter into the Christian community as a sinner who's been redeemed by Jesus Christ, and he's still working on changing me. I don't enter into the Christian community as the righteous judge of it to say, oh, that's, that group's no good, I'm going to step out of it and go somewhere else because they're not good enough for me. And so you have this situation where fellowship in the church is a command that is actually hard. Fellowship in the church, and it doesn't even have to be this church. It has to be some church. Some church you pick and you say, I'm putting my feet down and my roots down into this community of people. And it's going to be difficult and it's going to be hard. And there will be battles to be fought and to be won. We will be there in hopeless situations with and for one another. We accept each other knowing we have problems and conflicts and personality quirks and we're moving all of us to greater love and good deeds in Jesus Christ. But I put my roots down here and when the battle gets tough, I ain't leaving. That's what Jesus is looking for. When Jesus said, this is my command, that you agape one another, that you act in beneficial, loving ways to each other. And when you do that, people know you're my disciple. He didn't say, this is how people know you're my disciple. If you have touchy, warm feeling, affectionate, good feelings for each other, you come in and give each other a hug and touch base once a week. That's not what he was saying. As I was preparing this sermon and I got to kind of this level, I, I sat with this for a long time thinking about that. I thought, you know, I don't know. You know, if you're in some kind of situation with people that you have to work together and you're in Christian community, it's like, probably be good to cut and paste a bunch of one another's around the room just to be reminding yourself, oh yeah, that's right, oh yeah, that's right, you know, put them up around your home or whatever, you wake up in the morning, have a bunch of one another's, and every day you might pick one and say, that's the one I'm working on today, Lord, show me that one, right? But then as I thought more and more about this, I thought, you know, it's interesting because something has to be bigger and something is bigger than just being good to each other. Somehow, isn't the Christian life got a component to it that is larger? Something more grand. Something more comprehensive. Something more world-changing. No, even something more cosmic-changing. There's something about the Christian life that's bigger than just that we are good to each other. Not saying being good to each other is, you know, bad. And anyway, it's great. It's the starting point. But as it marches on, you start to realize I am part of a cosmic plan to redeem the earth, to transform the world, to see that a day will come when the king and the prince who holds the keys of death and Hades returns and rebuilds the whole thing. And he wants me in on that plan. 
I think about how our brothers and sisters are spread throughout the earth. There's a, a phrase when the Jewish nation got scattered when the temple fell and they got, diaspora is the word, they got sort of scattered throughout the world. And phrases now are, you know, the Christian community has always been diasporate. We are not a group of people that hold a nation state or a place or sovereign territory. Christians are scattered throughout the world in every tongue and tribe and nation, but we are bound together by the blood of Christ as brothers and sisters who live and do this life together. And we never know who a believer might be. That's the interesting thing. Like, part of me wants to think, well, Jesus was clearly giving this command to his own disciples. So there's a prerogative that, you know, the disciples are to love one another. Does that mean I'm obligated to love a non-believer in the same fashion? You know, my first thing is, nope, that's a, that's a, I'm out. I don't have to do that, right? I love the believers in a certain level. They don't have to love a non-believer in the same level. Galatians 6, 9, and 10 says, let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we don't, do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, but especially to those who are the household of the faith. It's kind of this command of, hey, if you start to get good at the one another's, you start to get good at being kind and tenderhearted and admonishing and lifting up and not speaking evil of one another, you will then carry that practice into all your relationships, including the ones that are outside the church. And as that attitude and that demeanor and those practices spill outside the church, guess what? The church, the people who are out there, some of them are already ordained by God for salvation, and you just don't know which one it is. You're bumping into people who you might encounter who are like, they're not at all people I would assume would become Christians, and then they become Christians. In fact, some of them might even be your present-day enemies who will one day become your brother or sister in Christ. And because we don't know, we act in the agape love to the world because we're practicing what Jesus wanted us to be. It's interesting because Galatians, that same book, it tells us that this relationship of agape loving people, it goes beyond race, it goes beyond class, it goes beyond gender, it even goes beyond citizenship. Galatians 3, 26 through 29 says, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you're Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. He's saying it's interesting that the idea of this Christian diaspora means I have brothers and sisters, and as do you, who are sitting in a different church right now. They're attending somewhere else. Right? It's not factionalism of saying, well, they're not, they're not part of our group, so they're not us. It's like, we're not, we happen to be part of the church that gathers here in this building. We are part of the universal church, as Bonhoeffer had said, until you understand that you see you're part of this great whole, this huge thing, that you are participating in your smaller sphere in something way bigger than you. And your brothers and sisters go beyond class, and they go beyond gender, they go beyond race, they go beyond patriotism. You have more in common with a person who is a fellow brother or sister in Christ in Mexico than you do with a non-believer who lives next door to you. At least in a spiritual sense, and in their spiritual relationships. 
This is what Jesus is trying to unpack. We are the diaspora. We are this brothers and sisters living, spread, scattered throughout the earth in many nations. We speak many languages. We live in many tribes. Jesus had said, love one another as I have loved you. That's an interesting caveat. As I sat with that, I thought, you know, Jesus did more than just be nice to me. Jesus did more than just be good to me. Jesus did more than just being kind to me. Jesus did more than just offer me a bonus favor now and then. What did it mean when Jesus came into my life? The biggest thing is actually that Jesus transfers us from a place of death to a place of life. He took us from being outsiders trapped in the dark against God and actually brought us through his shed blood into the family of God and adopted us as one of his own saying, welcome home, I give you a place to belong, a place to be, a place to become. Everything that you're ever going to go forward with here and forever in life is now a place here where you belong. This is the belonging. This is family. Like that's huge. He transferred us huge. We became children of promise and hope. Children of when that last verse in Galatians mentioned that we are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. It meant that God had said something to Abraham. In you all the nations of the earth will be blessed and you will be a blessing. Those who will curse you will be cursed. Those who who, um, bless you will be blessed. And he had gone on to that whole thing. All these promises filled out to that nation. And when when Jesus Christ came, he invited a lot more people into that promise. He says, I'm going to live this out through you now because you're part of this family. And I thought, perhaps what Jesus wants the church to be when it comes to loving each other, and I by no means am am playing down the one another's. Those are huge and hard to do. But maybe what Jesus really means for us at the higher level when he says, like I have loved you, is maybe the goal of the church is we help each other become who we were all truly meant to be. That it's not just, oh, I do you favors now and then if you're sick and I brought you some chicken soup. Maybe the biggest thing we could do as a church is we inspire one another and we speak to one another and we challenge each other to say, what is it God created you to be that's unique to you? What is the plan and the destiny he has for you in his greater whole purposes? And if I can help you become who you were meant to be, and you can help me become who I was meant to meet, that I was meant to be, and along the way we're really good to each other, isn't that so much more? Isn't that so much more? If the thing we could do is help us become that, it would mean, of course, that we would have to live our lives with meaning and purpose. It would mean that we wouldn't just say, well, what, I'm going to change jobs because I feel like changing jobs. It would mean, you know, well, I don't know. I'm kind of doing this right now. I don't know what else. And, you know, it would mean that when we sit down and talk to each other, there's a sense of which, what is the destiny God has on your life that you're not finding? And it would also mean, for that greater purpose, we would love the brethren near and far and globally. We would actually become partners with the church in the diaspora. What is it God has called you to do and become? What is our fellowship supposed to be with each other? And I think those one another's get fulfilled. What's our fellowship supposed to be with the church universal? 
You know, what is our fellowship supposed to be with our brothers and sisters in Christ who are refugees right now in camps around the world simply because they believed in Jesus Christ and were driven from their homes and had their property confiscated and are now living in a tent trying to figure out what's next in their life? Do we have any obligation to that? Does the command to love one another give us some sort of obligation to our brothers and sisters in that situation. I don't know if you know, but a large population of who's in refugee camps are there because they're Christians. That's why they're there. Open Doors has a world watch list of the top 50 countries who persecute Christians. And it's interesting because of the top 50, 31 of them are Islamic nations who are oppressing anything except Islam or their version of Islam. Twelve of those countries have religious nationalism or political paranoia, and they're mostly Buddhist and Hinduist countries persecuting Christians. Four of them are nations that are atheistic, communist nations, driving out anyone who believes in a God at all, especially Christians. And, of course, the last three are because of crime and corruption. People are fleeing those nations. Do we have an obligation to love one another and have that love spread across global lines? not just what happens inside the walls of the gathering house, I think Jesus meant yes. I think when he said this, I think he meant yes. That you're to love one another on a larger scale than just who's immediately right in front of you. I wonder about what is our obligation to our brothers and sisters in Christ who are living in difficulties in the United States, even for example. And I was thinking about, is there ways that, do we have an obligation to inner city black churches in Louisville, or in Atlanta, or in Baltimore, or in Chicago. Many of these who are fellow pastors in our own denomination. People that I know who are pastoring churches. I remember talking once with some guys who pastored a church in inner city Oakland, and they were telling him about being at staff meetings when they go out to a restaurant and they're eating at staff meetings. They would hear pop, 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 guns shooting off in the streets going down, and they all duck under the tables until the gunfire ends, and then they get back up and they continue their staff meeting. And they say, oh, no, no cops are ever coming here. This was six, seven years ago I had that conversation with them. Is there an obligation that we have to our brothers and sisters struggling in economic oppression, in difficult situations? Is there some way that we could show love there? And that got me thinking a lot about, you know, our connection through the the uh, brotherhood and sisterhood of our own denomination, the Evangelical Covenant. And I went on their website and I looked up, you know, what, is, what, what kind of things are being done out there. And I ran across the Global Engagements webpage, which is under the Serve Globally, if you go to the Evangelical Covenant Church's site, and you see the, you know, you can go to Serve Globally. And they have something called Customized Trips. Um, I think the next slide has that. They're Merge Trips. They're called Merge Trips, where for one to two weeks... You can go, and as it says, merge trips are designed to provide groups with opportunities to serve and learn together in settings across cultures and around the world. You can do a merge trip where you go out and you say, we're just going to take some teams, we're going to go see what God is doing in, who knows, Honduras or Mexico or Cambodia or Vietnam. We're going to do this kind of thing. You can customize these trips that you go on. And then you have a few others. They have some that are already there. And If you followed the list, they had nations where they're already at work. And then they can do others. They can, you can build your own. You can tell us your goals, and we can match them with exist, existing needs. You choose where you'll go and when and where, when you'll go and how you'll serve. And then the merge facilitators will work with you to say, okay, we'll help you put together a trip where you might want to go, what you might want to do. 
There's also disaster response teams that are still active today. And I looked that up and said, you mean there's evangelical covenant brothers and sisters in Christ who are saying, people need help in this nation, and we're going to go help them. And I looked up some of them, and it was interesting, because right now, down in Dickinson, Texas, New Bern, North Carolina, Sloan, Iowa, and Mead, Nebraska, and Eagle River, Alaska, are places where homes are being rebuilt. Some from hurricanes that were a long time ago, some from flooding that happened in Iowa, and of course there was an earthquake that hit Alaska. And guess what? They're like, are there any, are there any churches who would send teams of people and help us rebuild houses for our fellow Christians who've lost everything that they had? And I thought, man, that's when you begin to say, I'm living my life for higher purposes than just going to work and earning a paycheck. When we start asking ourselves, what could I become? What skills and talents? And actually, I don't even know if I have a slide for the next one that they had. What, what's next on my slides? I don't, nah, I don't, didn't have this. There was a whole one of taking a three-month to 12-month time out of your life and take whatever skills you have, and they'll say, you bring to us your skills. We'll find a place in the world that needs your skill set whether it be teaching ang- English or watching little kids or taking your logistics information or if you know how to build businesses or whatever it might be. They'll say, we, we'd like to find places that we could send you for three to 12 months. And it's like, yeah, and they say, yeah, you got to pay for it. And what I've found in my life is, no, Jesus pays for it. He always finds a way of you go in faithfulness. He says, don't worry, I'll pick up the tab on this. I'll get supporters for you. But what if we were inspiring each other to the level of love and good deeds where we were actually helping each other find our own true calling and purpose in the world, would that love be even higher than just being good to each other? I think so. I think that what God asked the church to do is, yes, come together, and you're going to practice these practices of one another's because they're going to make you better. They're going to make you a better human being. They're going to make you a better person. They're going to make you more Christ-like. They're going to put you in a practice of things where you're going to see what's wrong with yourself and, 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 uh, and uh, press in to become the warrior soldier of love for Jesus. And when you've honed those skills, then Jesus says, now I can take the other skill sets you have, your experiences, your talents, your education, your training, what you have to offer And I'm going to find places in the world where you will actually transform the lives of others. That's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking that wouldn't it be cool to live a kind of Christian life where you'd leave a legacy behind you that would say to a bunch of people who met you, they would say, my life would not have been any good had they not entered my life. My life would have never been the same had not I met so-and-so. Had I not met so-and-so. Had I not met so-and-so. People who you leave in the wake of the history of your living who will say, thank God I knew them. My life would not be the same had I not known them. That's real Christian living. As the band comes up and we close this sermon. And it could be many things. It could be clean water clinics, schools, it could be all kinds of things we're looking to do, and it could be stuff in, you know, I got a pastor friend, and I've mentioned this before, in Louisville, Kentucky, whose inner city, Louisville, his congregation, about half his congregation can't read or write. You know? What about a trip, say, hey, Pastor Mac, could we send a team down there, and we could help work with some things? He's done some phenomenal stuff. 
He started an after-school tutoring program where they would help the kids be tutored in their English. What it really was was we get the parents to come with their child, and the parent is learning to read through the children's tutoring program. Is that going to change a life in a huge way? Absolutely. I think as I've examined this passage and what Jesus is saying to us, to agape love, proactive love, not feeling love, actions of love, loving one another requires that we first are bound together as people whom Jesus loves. That's the first thing. We are all people who have been bought by the shed blood of Jesus Christ, and that binds us together in bigger ways than personality or temperament or experience or social class or race or gender. We are bound together by the blood of Jesus. Loving one another also means that we inspire and challenge and help each other to become all that we're supposed to be. And the third thing I realized is that loving one another sees us knit together on a global scale with our fellow believers in Christ. And in loving them in whatever capacity Jesus brings into our sphere, we become who we're supposed to be. We are knit together across race, nation, political boundaries, and economics. Why don't you just stand with us as we close this service with a song. And in the singing, take time to, if you want, let the worship team sing for you. And take this time to say, Lord, who am I supposed to be? What am I supposed to be doing? And who do you want to go with me? And let those prayers germinate now until they become the calling of your life. God, I just lift you up this morning, God. Thank you for the ability to praise you in the good times and in the bad. And what an amazing message this morning, Jesus, to remind us of the higher calling that we have, the higher power that we have. We are children of the Most High, adopted into your family. God, we thank you for that gift. We thank you for your sacrifice. And Jesus, we want to live every day with that higher calling. God, remind us of your agape love. So we go into our relationships in, in our home and in our workplace and in our world, and we see people the way that you see them through your eyes, Jesus. And we give you everything this morning, Lord, and we thank you for the opportunity to gather in this place and, and enter into your presence. We just give you our whole, our whole hearts and our whole lives, God. We praise your name in your name. in prayer here. So if you could bow your heads with me, that'd be good. God, I just thank you so much for the ability to gather together here in person and online. I pray that we would intentionally go out throughout our week thinking about agape love and seeking out people who will provide agape love because it's hard. I have I've experienced that in several different church communities and it is it is so wonderful in so many moments and then it gets really, really difficult. So I pray, God, that we would not be afraid of it and that we would be the warriors that you've called us to be. 
and I just, as he was preaching today, I just thought about the people that I have met throughout my life within the body of Christ that I will never, ever forget. So I pray that we would remember those people, and I pray that we would thank them for being a part of our lives, and I pray that we would seek out our purpose, and we would remember how powerful we are with your name. In your precious name, amen.